This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. So tonight, we're going to just continue with our, um, you know, we've been talking to veterans in the past couple of weeks, and uh, what, you know, particularly what brings veterans to a party like the Libertarian Party. And so tonight we're going to hear a little bit about Jake Dahl's story. Um, but first, I have a few announcements. So pull up my. Um, there is an affiliate meeting or an event for the Women's um, Health and Data Privacy May 18th at uh, 6:30 in Hastings for the Libertarian Party, Libertarian Women in Goodhue and Dakota Counties. Um, then we also have an event, uh, an affiliate meeting in West for West Central Libertarians in Alexandria at one o'clock at the VFW. Monday, their CD3 is meeting at Omni Brewing at 6.30. And then the Minnesota Valley Libertarians is meeting at Polito's Pizza at seven o'clock in Mankato. So uh, I guess without further ado, we'll just introduce you to Jake Dahl and get to talk to him a little bit. So hi, how's it going? Uh Uh-oh. I think you're on mute. That I am. Okay. Hi, Hi, Jake. Hello. How are you all doing tonight? Pretty good. good. How are you? Oh, doing great. So, So. Jake, um, you were in what branch? I was in the Army. I was active duty for six years and two years in the Minnesota National Guard. Okay. Um, So, when you joined the Army... How old were you? Technically 18. A few days after I shipped to basic, I turned 19. But okay. I was fairly young. I was the 9-11 generation. Yep. Um, and we're probably pretty close to the same age. So, that's, yeah. I, yeah. Anyways. Uh, so, what, to, what was your job like? What did you do? What did you want to do? Did you end up getting to do what you wanted to do when you were in the Army? I guess is the way I should... So I've, I grew up uh, on my mom's side of the family, kind of a, we have a tradition of military. Most of my family was Navy. And during high school, I talked to a few different recruiters, um, Marine recruiter. I talked to the most Navy never really showed up around Breckenridge, Minnesota, because there's really, I, I don't know, maybe just not enough water for them. <laughs> um, I flirted with the idea. Um, I was going to go airborne infantry, just like every other knucklehead, 18-year-old, 17-year-old. Kind of got talked out of that right away. My uncle I was living with uh, went to law enforcement school in Alec after graduating, which I don't don't know if it was much better. But uh, 9-11 happened my senior year, and there was always that urge so what I wanted to do, I thought I wanted to be infantry. I thought I wanted to go be the one with the rifle going and fighting. Well, my recruiter in Alec in late 02 talked me into being a tanker. He said I didn't have to walk as much and I got to fire a big gun, which was well, not a lot. True. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he was a tank mechanic and he, he said he could stay warmer as a tanker. That's true. So really, he didn't lie to me. I had one of the recruiters that never lied to me. But 
I, I had a, I guess I had a high enough ASVAB score. I could have done anything, but I picked one that you, you don't really need to have an ASVAB score to get into. Uh, yeah, that, I did know people, people that, that failed it. That is true. Yeah. Uh, for people that know ASVAB, that's kind of the test you take to uh, fit you with a job. It's an aptitude test really. Mm -hmm. hmm. So. Yep. And yeah. I know when I went to high school, everybody who is their junior year of high school, we, we were all required to take the ASVAB test. So yeah. they just kind of went through and all of us took it and that's probably why they contacted me quite a bit in high school too. After I took the ASVAB, but I don't know. It, I guess I got the job I wanted enlisting when I was in, that was sometimes a different story, but. So nine 11 is what I'm hearing is really kind of what got you interested in enlisting. Is that right? Well, there was always an interest. My, uh, one grandpa I grew up around was Navy back from 1950 to 1955. His dad was in World War I. I had quite a few uncles in Vietnam, a few cousins that were in the Gulf War. So it is kind of a tradition. I was probably going to end up in uniform regardless at that age. Um, just, I don't know, maybe hardwired sure. before I started learning more. Yeah. So I, when you, you went to basic training, did you, did you, did tankers do basic training at Fort Benning? Uh, back then it was Fort Knox. Okay. We did 16 weeks of one station unit training. Okay. Um, shipped off in February 03. The war in Iraq kicked off while, well, March 16th, while I was coming back from the rifle range. I remember that we're riding in a bus and or the day before when Bush made the announcement, I was, well, just private and basic training. Yep. Get, getting excited. Drill sergeants messing with their heads. But there's this kind of um, unspoken, well, no, not even unspoken. It's, it's you know, like verbalized. Uh, you know, if there's some sort of battle or fight, it's, you know, exciting and you just want to be part of it. And, you know, we wanted to go. Most yeah. of us in basic wanted to, we joined to fight because we knew the war was going to happen. Night, we were already in Afghanistan. I don't know if it's that young male aggression that just naturally wanted. I know I naturally wanted to go towards the fight. Looking back older, I guess I shake my head, but you know, that's when that's why we have young people fighting our wars because they're young and dumb enough to do it. Don't know enough to know better, really. Nope. Jake, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? 39. 39. Okay. So that's been when you said 18 is when you actually enlisted. Yep. Um, I would have hit my 20 years in February if I would have stayed in. So I've been out for 12 years. Okay. So, um, when you, so you're part of the Libertarian Party also. Yep. Um, what, I mean, well, I guess we should backtrack a little bit. While you were still in the army and Iraq kicked off, you deployed. So, where did you deploy to? What was the mission like? That kind of stuff. 
So I didn't make it over there in 03. Um, I got to Fort Stewart, Georgia, uh, 3rd Infantry Division in, I suppose it was late, late June, early July, 2003. And I was put on rear detachment in uh, 1st Brigade, 3rd Battalion, 69th Armor Regiment. Um, I was that close to getting shipped over because we had replacements that were going to go over. I was issued my desert camo, all my gear, and it got canceled about 24 hours prior. Um, I went over in 05. We went, or my battalion brigade went to Samara, Iraq, which is just south of Tikrit. Um, Saddam was found not far from where I was when I was over there. Uh, second deployment, we went to Ramadi in the Ambar province. And we spent 16 months there. The first deployment was 12 months. Second one was 16 for my unit. We were got over there before the surge was officially announced and we're over there two months and the surge was announced. And so we knew right away, it wasn't a surprise when we got held over and got back, got out. So what kind of things did you do day to day while you were deployed? First deployment, I guess, because, you know, two deployments were different. So. So by that time in the war, tanks were not incredibly useful. I mean, there were missions we did, but the first mission my platoon was assigned to was uh, training Iraqi police in the city of Samara. We're at this little outpost. We worked a lot with um, uh, civil affairs and there was an SF unit around. Um, we had some interaction with them, you know, positive, but we, we pulled security for them, the outer cordon. So we were basically the, we had big tanks. We could keep people out of the, but they were doing the cool guy stuff. We were sitting there just watching sand. Um, during that time, we rotated between uh, base security at the one main outpost my battalion was at. And we'd go on patrols, go help out logistics, go, um, go on supply runs. Basically, we're gophers and quick reaction forces for when things went wrong. We even took out our tanks one time with our mine plow and had to plow a minefield. Yeah. And we found mines. It That day, one of our trucks, our scout trucks got hit and four of our soldiers were killed in that. Uh, so we kind of went in with a little piss and vinegar, you might say. Yeah. Second deployment, uh, we were taking over for the previous unit that started clearing out Ramadi. Uh, so we were more in a direct combat role. Um, we did use our tanks in downtown Ramadi, uh, help secure the streets while Iraqi police, Marines, and our infantry went out and did most of the door knocking, although we got involved in some of that too. Uh, when that mission kind of ended about April, May, we got moved out. We kind of followed where the insurgents were going up north. And then we started working with the provincial security forces, which I have to say was probably more of the bright spot because we started working with the locals that didn't like us, thought we were invaders, but we weren't, uh, we weren't murdering their families like the Wahhabists were coming in from Saudi Arabia. So I guess mm -hmm. we're going to be the bad guys here. We're the less bad guys and we weren't trying to hurt them or giving them money. So that always helps. But we ended up being pretty decent friends with them and they were pulling our security by the end. 
So even in bad situations in a war we shouldn't have been in, there were still some positive, I mean, relative positive things. Um, when did the Battle of Ramadi start? Oh, really, if you want to get back to it, 2003. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's true. Officially. Really, I'm not sure what the official date was. I know 2000, 2004, it got pretty hot and heavy out in Ambar. Mm -hmm. And 05 and 06, it really heated up. Um, Battle of Fallujah always gets the attention because the Marines are pretty good at uh, PR and got all the media attention. Oh, yeah, but they we, did. Yeah, they're media whores. <laughs> um, when we got over there, it was... The previous unit did a lot of good work at clearing out. I mean, and good work in military sense. They established a lot of bases, and we kind of just uh, took the torch from them and continued and pushed people out. And I Googled it. It was March um, 2006 to November 2006 is when technically the Battle of Ramadi was going on. I remember so, it being pretty well, I remember it being pretty rough when we were over there, but I, I know it was rougher before we got there. So we didn't, I'm not going to say we were in the worst of it, but it definitely was not over. I think that was an, the timeline was a little short, but. Uh, it's, yeah. And maybe they consider that the, um, like the time period when like things started becoming more under control. Um or strategically, they were intentionally like intentionally trying to get things more under control. So I don't know. Maybe that's how they figured that out. Yeah. Um, I remember when Bush said the war was won. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Oh, hey, Leif. My son is trying to crawl in the picture. <laughs> Have a visitor. Oh, yeah. Hold on a second. I'm going to yell. <laughs> okay you were yeah. booted very quickly so it's fine yeah. i've actually been doing pretty good there jake what was it like when you were you mentioned you heard you were there remember when bush declared the war over from the information you were hearing at, at the time when you were in i in in over there like and the stuff like the dates aren't maybe necessarily lining up from what you're remembering on some things how, how do you think that was information was given over there versus what we were hearing back here so we got it a few days late with uh stars and stripes newspapers internet wasn't as accessible as it was in more recent years so we just kind of rolled our eyes and it didn't really affect us because like oh it's over right yeah, that's why we just had this ied go off on us yeah a cool story uh, we were already getting salty by then. We weren't uh, cheerleaders of the war like we may have been at the beginning. Yeah, and I remember um, there were a couple of times that we heard about what we were about to start doing um, from CNN before we heard it from our chain of command. So yeah, we were, you know, listening, like people were listening to the news and bringing what the news said we were going to do to work the next day and being like, hey, did you, you know, we're deploying. The CNN just said we're deploying. And uh, oh, cool. 
Yeah. And then our and then our chain of command later in the week said, oh yeah, actually that was true. We aren't deploying. <laughs> so the incident where our family readiness group got word of a deployment before we did. Yeah. I mean, we knew it, we knew it was coming, but that did not go over well. No. A bunch of angry army wives being <laughs> angry army wives. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we found out about the extension um, uh, through the news before we found it out officially through our chain of command. That was how we found out was through the newspaper in, in Colorado Springs. Yeah. We, we knew we were going to be extended before we left. So it, it came as a surprise to nobody because he had already leave your unit already been screwed by that. So we just knew yeah. it was coming. So you were in, uh, you went to third ID in 2003 and that was while they were doing the invasion. Yep. The third ID was an integral part of the invasion in Iraq. Yep. The company I went to Bravo company, 369 armor was attached to uh, two, seven infantry. And they are the ones that took over Saddam international. Okay. Um, they, our brigade wasn't the Thunder Run Brigade. Um, that was 2nd Brigade, 3rd ID. Um, but, yeah, the unit I did, they, they're the ones that went through uh, Nazareth. I don't remember everything exactly. I know we lost one soldier out of our company by sniper during that invasion. I never knew him. That was before my time there. Yeah. But, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, the people I jumped in with, that was the FNG or the freaking new guy and or non-combat patch wearing. Oh, yeah, get that one. That didn't last that long, but we had good, good people to help train us to keep us alive anyway, because these are the these are the ones that went through the rough stuff, you know right or wrong they they had the combat experience right and third id didn't um really play a part with afghanistan though did it not in the beginning after i got out they actually sent my armor unit to afghanistan and they ended up just being uh augmented to one of the special forces groups over there from what i understand yeah so that just means carting people around and pulling out or security not doing the cool guy stuff yeah but with snow I think that in the beginning, when Afghanistan 9/11 happened, and really the wow. units that went into Afghanistan were fairly minimal. Like there was 10th Mountain Division, um, 82nd, uh, you know, Ranger Battalion, Special Forces. Those kinds of units were going into Afghanistan. But as far as like some of the other brigades, there wasn't a lot of activity in Afghanistan until after the war in Iraq kicked off. And then there was like this increase in, you know, increase in deployments and everything to Afghanistan simultaneously while we're also yeah. um, on the second front in Iraq. Well, there's also the concept that tanks do not do well in mountainous environments. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> paid attention to the 1980s uh, Soviet invasion and that did not work well. No, Afghanistan was not going to be, I mean... There were a lot of other countries that had already had, you know, chronic list of failures in Afghanistan. So now we're on the list. Yeah, now we are. 
So Jake, you so, were 18 years old, um, kind of a, a family history of, of serving in the military, and you went ahead and served your country in the military. You're now a member of the Libertarian Party, which is, is not known as a pro-military political organization. Um, walk, walk me through, walk us through that transition. How did you go from that to where you are today? So I'd have to say it started, well, when I first joined, I was, you know, rock solid Republican, you know, George Bush. I mean, at the time, the environment we came up in, that was, if you're never exposed to libertarian ideas before then, you're going to go on either the John Kerry Democrats or George Bush Republicans. I sure as hell was not going to be a John Kerry Democrat because he doesn't, you know, 18 year old macho. He, he didn't really present the, well, first of all, he, looking back, he still was a bad choice anyway. <laughs> He's, um, so going from the hardcore Republican and it was about, Oh five, oh six. I started getting a bit disenfranchised, you know, going over there and actually seeing things. I'm not going to make the claim. I seen the toughest combat. I, I, I did what I had to do and seen some stuff, but there's other people that went through a lot worse than I ever had to. Um, oh seven is when it really started bugging me. We lost four guys out of my platoon of 16. Um, now, one of my buddies, Kelly's, he, he was 18 or just turned 19 when he took a sniper round. All of our, all the guys in my platoon died by sniper. Um, then I started uh, hearing the gospel around Paul. <laughs> and he, he was kind of the segue and he got respect because he actually, he did have skin in the game back in the 60s and 70s. He did. He obviously went a little different route than I did because he's a physician and, you know, a lot smarter than me. Uh, then I remember late 07, early 08 with one of my tank commanders, we just sit on guard shift and just bash the government. And we'd watch uh, the TV show Jericho, if you remember that one. Mm -hmm. I we, do. we got pretty heavy into that. And, of course, that kind of pushes our narrative, too. Um, and then I got back, it was 08, Ron Paul, I voted for Ron Paul, even though he wasn't on the ballot. Uh, then I got out in 08, got involved in National Guard, and that kept me in Minnesota, and then kind of started looking at the Libertarian Party, um, but to be honest, they seemed a little more leftist than I appreciated at the time. Um didn't and they weren't very yeah like you said they weren't very pro-military which i think i don't know if that's a misnomer i i don't i see us as more anti-war not necessarily anti-military and now that we've had more of a surge of uh prior service military uh there's still a a pretty good wing of people i imagine that are just anti-military but yeah well that's the right to believe it uh, 2012, I got involved in the Republican Party more directly to be a Ron Paul delegate. Um, I guess our new chair for the state party was running all that, although I had never had any contact with her. I was just a small, small county on Western Minnesota delegate, got to the state convention, voted for Ron Paul. 
then got disgusted with the Republican Party seeing how greasy and corrupt they were up front and personal. Now, I will say the Stevens County Republicans were good folks, no problem with them. They were, you know, just nice, genuine people. It's more at, you start getting above the county level, at least in that county. Didn't have the problems like Ottertail County has. Um, but of course, it was a different dynamic back then. And then after that, honestly, that it really wasn't until the Mises Caucus came around that I, yeah, somebody opened the door to the Libertarian Party. I joined back in 2016. I guess I was a paying member since 2016 or 2014. But nobody ever did any outreach out here because um, they had their hands tied up. They're busy in the cities, I guess. Um, and there are just not a lot of people doing outreach at the time. Not enough people were paying attention. And, well, kind of went down the black hole of get, getting further into libertarian politics. Sure. That's really easy to do, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm aware. <laughs> Well, and thanks for walking us through that. I, I think a, a couple of things that I picked up on there is you, you made the distinction about pro-military and anti-war. And thank you for pointing that out, because I, I would agree that the Libertarian Party is very much anti-war. We, we do support our veterans. We just don't want to get into wars, unlike maybe some of the other parties that are more out there. Oh, trying absolutely. To, yeah. Let's um, not make veterans. That's the great point. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, thank you. And last week I said this to Rebecca as well. Thank you, Rebecca, again for your service because I did not serve. So hearing the perspective from folks like you that did serve and then being able to kind of walk through how you came to this position of not being pro-war, being anti-war, that, that means a lot. And like you said, Ron Paul had the credence to talk about that. And I think that's a, a, a very, very good point. Yep. And... I would say it's been a transition with more veterans joining the Libertarian Party, whether a lot of the old guard liked it or not. <laughs> we, um, But speaking on, I, I've changed my perspective. I don't think everybody should serve. And I think, you know, you know, got to have the people smart enough to do other things. <laughs> and, and it's good to have different perspectives. Um, you have a perspective on your route to liberty, I imagine, than I did. And that's, that's a good thing. Sure. Yes. You know, I just, um, I didn't come to the Libertarian Party through Ron Paul. I was, um, I went from getting out of the army to being an army wife because my husband was still in the army. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, the, his, his message of, and later when I started paying attention and really, um, you know, like the Libertarian kind of, you know, debate and discussion and all that kind of stuff because that's one thing that we're, we are really good at is being able to like pick apart an argument and discuss it and the philosophy behind it and really be able to verbalize what people are thinking and feeling and all of these you know different aspects of that and be able to kind of I don't know sometimes come out with a nice balance but sometimes you know like life and philosophy is always at odds yeah um so I, I appreciated Ron Paul's, you know, his consistency in what he said versus, um, you know, like the being the lone voice in a sea of status in Congress. 
that's got to be a hard position to be in for him. Well, his messaging wasn't, he was like one of the first people I heard that was anti-war that wasn't bashing us in uniform. Right. Like we had code pink protests, which I still don't really have a lot of respect for that group because I don't think they're in the one of the founders her son died. I think her intentions were pure, but I don't think a lot of the other people associated it had good intentions with it. It was like they're anti-war as long as this Bush's war, but Obama's war is fine. Yeah. But, yeah. but well, Ron, Ron Paul, Paul was, had this graciousness about him. You know, he was just, yeah. um, it, I guess it's it not a dick. more like a purity of his character. Yeah. And he, he, he didn't demean people. Right. For, he'll demean the Federal Reserve. <laughs> but that was still probably kind of nice in my from my perspective. He was too nice about it, kind of. And Jake, as you had said the, about Bush's war and, and, and then Obama's war, I, I do think there was a lot of the media really did not portray Obama as a wartime president, even though there, there were surges and there were things that he did that was, I think, kind of kept from us. Where Bush oh, hell, it Afghanistan was, was worse under Obama than it was yeah. under Bush. Actually, sure. uh, Afghanistan was fairly well handled, per se, under Bush. Then it kind of spun out of control with Obama. Yeah. Because it really it made... wasn't until after 08 when things started getting really bad there and started taking a mass amount of casualties. Well, we took all... Oh, sorry. Oh, we took a lot more casualties in Iraq during the early, the first decade. Yeah. That's true. And I'd mentioned earlier about how like the activity in Afghanistan seemed to increase, but only after the first few years that we were in um, Iraq. And I, I guess I hadn't thought about maybe it was the, you know, the change in presidencies where that might have made the difference. And the, the strategy the you know, from the administration was different. Maybe we weren't using enough munitions in Iraq anymore. So they had to have a place to go sell some more uh, uh, weapons. Absolutely yeah. correct, Derek. Yep. <laughs> Derek says, or Derek Lutman says, bring all veterans home. So, yeah. Yep. You know, and I and guess there's this, <laughs> there's this, um, I think this natural human, um, I don't know, flaw maybe that people are in general and not like individually, but just in general, you know, war is a human problem from as far back, you know, as there's a written history, there's always fighting and, and people, you know, conflict and that kind of stuff. Um, and that we have to figure out a way to be able to kind of reel that in and it's expect more from our government not to get us into something that's futile, you know? Like if it were, if we had been attacked and we were defending our own country at our country, um, then, you know, that's a, I, I would have a hard time not just jumping in and wanting to fight too, you know, like who's going to sit back and not defend their country, you know, but here, like we're not defending our country in Iraq because there's Iraq wasn't doing anything to us. That's not the way it was sold to us back then. And no. I would, you know, myself and a lot of other people I served with, we were just young and naive mm -hmm. and we still had a larger trust in government. We didn't have the issues we've had in the last five years, two, three years. Right. That would grade trust. I mean, I, you know, Bill Clinton was 
well, a dirt bag, but he was a, a much better smooth talking dirt bag. And we didn't have the animosity in our country. And then nine 11, that was like the most unified our country will ever be. And for right or wrong reasons, it, I guess it really doesn't matter in the end. It kind of did make to a, things were more positive in a way, except for our bloodthirst. We definitely had that thirst yeah. for blood. Uh, so um, I didn't remember, like for myself, kind of this turning point um, was when ISIS came in and took over Iraq, at least portions of Iraq. And the way that I viewed it was that, you know, it, it made me question what the point was for everything that had happened. If, you know, the moment that we leave, another invading group of people is just going to come in and undo everything that we were doing that was supposedly, suppo you know, good, right? Yeah. What, when that happened, were you paying attention and how did that affect you? Well, yeah, I was already becoming fairly anti-war when I was still in Iraq in 07, 08. Was like, what are we actually doing here? But then we've seen positive things in, in Ramadi when they started rebuilding the city because there was enough security. And it made me think like that's free market. It truly was free market. You see these little shops pop up on the side of the road. People are cleaning it up so they can have those shops. We're pumping a lot of money in there. And, you know, we pump our personal money into the market. We go get food. Uh, and you see people building up their community. It, you know, Iraq hasn't always been a big trash hole. And, you know, the people do try to fix it. You know, given the chance, they're going to improve the area that they live in. They're, I mean, the Iraq, Baghdad, Middle East has been a mecca of essentially capitalism throughout, throughout history. I mean, when you talk about markets, uh, Silk Road ended in Baghdad. That was like the hub of trade and you have enterprising people over there. So, you know, seeing that perspective from Ron Paul, that was night, you know, like these, I guess my thoughts weren't as refined back then, but mm -hmm. you know, when things were peaceful, commerce happens. Yeah. And then we come in and screw it up. <laughs> like our, our individual units did well with the locals, but then you get big army you know, State Department come in and just wreck it all. Allow, you know, if we're going to mess something up, we better make sure it's, or try to clean it up right. And we just, the way we ended things, we should have been more thoughtful if we're going to, well, we shouldn't have been there, but. Yeah. But if, if, I guess the way I view it is if, if we are going to be there and we're already in the situation where we were, like Afghanistan, we we're already in the situation where we're already there, um, you know, withdrawing and leaving the country because you need a, a an exit plan, right? Um, yeah. I, right now, um, Iraq and now we know that Afghanistan ended up being the exact same way. Like you couldn't possibly have made a withdrawal worse um, and oh, done a no. worse job of, what, of, of how it ended up happening. And, you know, I heard people trumpet, you know, like we got to end these wars right now. Like rock solid. Like I get the sentiment. I understand it, but all these people that worked with us, they have skin. How many of them were killed? They're, we 
pulling out of there too quick and without a good plan put a lot of a lot more people died than needed to right i mean it if you'd have just done it over six months to a year and you know when we're withdrawing we weren't really in under not going to compliment trump but during trump thing we weren't having a lot of combat really we weren't having losses really because we had an agreement with the taliban we were getting out and there was not as much fighting but then we just pulled out and everything went to hell yeah and ramadi um, was one of those places that isis went to and the last over. the last place to fall in iraq a uh, little bit of pride there the people really did take pride in their area and their communities we've seen that and they're just, I think those people out there are just ruggedly independent. Mm-hmm. I think that way with Saddam, probably with the British, everybody, they, they just like their independence. So I kind of, I'd like to go back there and visit one day to see if, well, if we ever get a chance. Well, and th- this is a question that that I would have for both Rebecca and you, Jake, as far as you, you're over there in, in a foreign land with your life on the line. And as you had mentioned, friends in your own unit are, are dying. You then come back here to the United States. Well, what sort of things do you feel that our government could have and should have done differently to kind of transition back to life in America after being over there. Hmm. I'll let you answer that. I got to get my son away from that. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what, what could have been done differently. Um, honestly, it, that's a hard question because it, you, you go from that situation, right? Where you're, and, and the difference of a war in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan versus, and I heard this from a general one time being interviewed and I didn't understand really the difference in the different, you know, like World War II, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, those kinds of things. So he was comparing the, the, the expectations of soldiers during those wars um, and he specifically said that we are seeing more PTSD from Iraq and Afghanistan because we have a smaller army doing um, longer tours, more frequent tours, and we're expected to do more during those tours. In, like, for instance, in the case of World War II, not only was there a clear defined enemy and a front line, but they were also, you know, there were, and there were big battles, you know, there were major things that were happening, but once that battle, there was time to be able to go back to the rear and kind of decompress. Um, we didn't get that in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, it was 12, 15, 16 months, whatever your deployment ended up being. Um, the Marines was, they only deployed for six months at a time. Um, so um, you know, we, we were doing a lot less, we were doing a lot more and they were expecting a lot more. I think that if we had had shorter deployments, 
Um, and, you know, like the, the burden of the war was kind of spread out over more people. It wouldn't have been quite as intense, um, but that wasn't what we got. Jake, do you have anything to add on to that? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I would, one difference between, and to touch on the PTSD stuff, I guess I can, I'm really not sure there could have been much done either. We, we didn't have as many people deploy. If you look at World War II and Vietnam and every other generation that sent outside of the Gulf War, that was a pretty small group too. When you come home, you where I live, we don't really have many veterans, period, from any generation. And it is very hard to find veterans in our age group. And Sebastian Younger wrote a book, Tribe, that kind of discussed this issue. And I, th I think it nailed it that we don't see longer tours and um, higher operations tempo and all that, that really does have an effect. It can wear people down. People didn't get out of the military. I, I have friends that have done 10 deployments or more. Um, it, it's wild, really. Other generations, the only people that really did that were kind of your wild men. They're pretty few and infrequent. Um, but us coming back home and not having a group of peers to be able to go relate to and where I work now in the emergency medical services and fire somewhat, we, it's kind of a, a smaller group of people. Um, I don't know, a tribe, I guess that's a great way to say it, you know, like the name of the book. Um, I guess ways they could help this transition. I, I'm not sure if there's anybody competent enough to put together a program <laughs> when we get out. Um, I, for, I for, even forgot the name, but, but like the transitions just don't work well. Maybe the VA not trying to throw us all on psychotropic medication is instantly after we get out. Yeah, that would um, help. <laughs> not, yeah, not prescribing us a whole bunch of opioids just because you get a little back pain. Oh, here's some Percocet. And then you get addicted. And and then they abruptly cut things off. And it's it's a clown show, really. So outside of just not sending us to combat anyway, I don't know, maybe the previous generations, they, where they just cut you loose and said, here you go. And they gave GI Bill, the GI Bill after World War II. Hell maybe that more people had something to come back home to and more of a peer group to deal with. So I don't know. That's a tough question. That's, I don't know if there's a good answer. Well, and thanks for, for talking about that because I, I know some of this stuff, I, I should, I say, I, I don't I should say, I don't know, but I would assume some of this stuff is not real easy to, to talk about. So I appreciate you both kind of going deep with that to the point that you can with it. Um, as far as a, a party, the Libertarian Party, obviously not going to war is, is the first thing, but what, what sort of things do you feel the party can bring to veterans? 
be a little bit more open to people who haven't maybe have had the seed planted of libertarianism, but not go. We have a problem with eating our own. We expect purity. You know, like if you're not essentially see some people, if you're not an ANCAP, you're not a true libertarian or you get, try not to be pretentious assholes all the time to people who are starting to make their change, you know, their thought process come to more along our lines. Uh, maybe not go out and make the most extreme, come out with a most extreme position. I mean, it's kind of hard. Cause I, I don't know. I've always made the analogy about how a lot of us go out and try to recruit libertarians as uh, Beavis and Butthead trying to go pick up chicks. It, <laughs> it it doesn't always work. Like you go walk up to somebody in a bar and you start talking about Ludwig von Mises. They're going to look at you and like, oh, you're cool. And probably ignore you. But, you know, to reach out for, you know, veterans, you know, not come out saying like, oh, war pig, war pig, you know, your baby killer. Although you don't hear that as much anymore. Definitely heard it in the beginning when I first started coming around. Um, I don't know. That could be one way to get, I think veterans could be a very powerful group within the Libertarian Party because it's like we've been under the foot of government. And, and suffered for it. Yeah, we... There, you know, I've just had another person I served with in the last couple of weeks kill. I assume he killed himself. I didn't really see it on Facebook, but a guy in his early forties suddenly dying, you know, with no other medical conditions or anything. It's the writing's kind of on the wall for that. Um, and that's a hard hit to take, you know, every time that happens, that's just, yeah. You know, to the rest of us that are left, it's it's very demoralizing um, because, you know, the way I see it. So I got out in 2007, whatever that is to now, you know, 16 years ago. So if I have friends that now even now 16 years are still committing suicide because of what we went through. Um, how, who do, who's safe from that? Yeah, Vietnam veterans who still do it. Just because they're older doesn't mean it happens in World War II generation. They it was just covered up. I mean, you know, not a, a conspiracy type cover up, but in small communities where I'm from, you just didn't talk about it. Like, oh, right. they just died. Right. Well, and there's and, still this stigma. Like, you know, if you don't hear a cause of death, you know, nobody wants to say it out loud. Nobody wants to verbalize somebody committing suicide. But, you know, last if somebody week. dies of cancer, they say so-and-so died of cancer last week. But if you sure. don't hear what they died of, that's it's typically because nobody wants to say it out loud. Well, at least we're, you know, having the funerals in the churches and not burying them at the back of the cemeteries like it used to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's still a lot of 
there's enough veteran suicide from previous wars that we uh it gets written off like oh they just died in their sleep like well that 70 year old 80 year old vietnam veteran just overdosed on beta blockers you know and you never know and i i guess because i'm one of the people that respond to those kind of scenes now you kind of get an idea but yeah but our generation is kind of we got to step up and get active. We need to get more people on our side because I th think creating a community like that. That's one thing with libertarians. We can create a community and that that can help address that problem of not having a tribe. I but, think yeah. too that sometimes that using, like for me, being able to have an outlet to use the energy that, you know, like the emotions, and that kind of stuff that I'm feeling from having gone through that and having a way to use that in a positive manner that where I'm actually doing something to try and prevent what happened so that there's this, you know, instead of in internalizing those feelings, like being able to let them out and do something with that has been a very positive thing for me. It's actually been very healing. Getting involved in the party, finding, you know, meeting people like you all, you know, you know, Rebecca and your husband, I mean, that's, you know, we, we all went to the same places. We kind of understand our backgrounds and, you know, funneling it and like defend a guard. That's something that could be very positive and might actually get traction. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more things we could do just in general, like the idea of getting people elected to local office, getting more of our influence in there at the core level, we'll start seeing the fruits of that 10, 20 years from now, maybe sooner. Yeah. Well, I know when I found out you had been to Ramadi, I was like, instantly, I was just like, oh, he gets it. And there, you know, there's certain things that you don't want to say, you know, that, yeah. that you can't describe to somebody else, but somebody who's been through it doesn't need those, you know, doesn't need that explanation. There's really no way to say it, though. I, I haven't found a way to verbalize a lot of that. And, you know, perhaps it doesn't need to be. You know, there's some things the rest of the world probably just shouldn't need to know. And the best way to prevent them from knowing is to keep them out of that situation in the first place. Yeah, I would agree with that. So what do you, what are you, and we've talked a lot about this, we only have about five minutes left, but what are you doing now? in your life? Like, what do you have going on? Well, I lost my mind about 10 years ago and got into the emergency medical services. Um, started as an EMT, became a paramedic, became a critical care paramedic, and now I manage uh, Crookston Ambulance and still run ambulance calls. Um, right before this uh, podcast, I went on an ambulance call like I mentioned to y'all before we started. Uh, more importantly, I have my family. I've got a wife, four kids, and uh, raising them, trying to, them keeping me in line, well, I guess is probably more likely. <laughs> but yeah, it, I don't really live that wild of a life, and I'm okay with that. Some people may disagree with the EMS side, but I, most of the time it's pretty, pretty low key. 
when you decided to be a paramedic, what was your reasonings for wanting to pursue something like that? So uh, that one crew I mentioned on my first deployment that got killed, one of my buddies was in that truck. He was a medic, uh, Ray Furman. And I, I hung around and drank with the medics um, when I got to 3rd Infantry Division. A lot, there was a lot of uh, medics that came back early. And, well, I just kind of jumped into them and started drinking with them down in Savannah. And <laughs> I guess it had an influence, and I always had an interest in the medical side. Um, got my combat lifesaver in the Army, which is a first responder with some extra, a, a spicy first responder, you might say. To do yeah. some extra stuff. Uh, then got out, uh, did a few different things, oil patch, started welding, and I became a first responder for the company I was welding for. They talked me into EMT school. Then after that, like, you know, I think I could be a paramedic and I have a GI Bill. And that's what I did. You know, I knew a lot of people that went from um, being, you know, some a different job in the Army, not a medical job in the Army. And then once they got out, decided to become some sort of, you know, medic or nurse or something like that. Um, and it was a lot of, honestly, uh, I don't know very many medics <laughs> that actually stuck with being medics once they got out of the army. Um, but I do know quite a few combat arms that chose to go through the medical into the medical field after getting out, which I think is very interesting, you know, like, cause there's just such a, a flip-flop there. Oh, we no longer cause harm. Right. We help. And we can maybe save some lives. I mean, some of the experiences I had in combat definitely contributed to me being being able to handle some of the... You see some pretty bad stuff on, you know, in the scope of the job. So. Yep. Um, well, do you have any other questions, Troy, for him? No, I, I think this was a, a great conversation that we had and just want to thank both of you for sharing your, your time over in Iraq, as well as just the kind of part of it that brought you to the Libertarian Party or that why you feel the Libertarian Party is a good place to be. So thank you both for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. It was a good conversation. Yeah, appreciate it, Jake. Thank you. And I guess, um, you know, if you want to be involved in the party, uh, go to lpmn.org. There's information on the website um, to be able to join the party or like find your local affiliates where they're meeting their times, you know, get the information for that. And um, we guess that we have one more person next week um, leading up to Memorial Day for our you know, veteran interview. And I am not going to be doing that one. Um, so somebody else will be doing that one. But um, so thank everybody for their time and lpmn.org. You know, veteran interview. And I am not going to be doing that one. Um, so somebody else will be doing that one. But um, so thank everybody for their time and lpmn.org.